and welcome to the Cocktail Hour with me, your host, Erin Polk. The Cocktail Hour is a place where we celebrate the women in business who are shaking shit up. This week we are talking to Gloria Squitero, author and former first lady of Kansas City. Welcome. Hey there, Erin. Thank you for being in Long Beach, New York. I was gonna me. say, and this is one we are not doing in Kansas City. We're in Long Beach, New York, and we're sitting in your gorgeous uh, with your gorgeous view of the beach from your living room. Yep, the Atlantic so, Ocean, right outside uh, the door. We were going to do it out there, but it's too noisy. So we're going to look at that, and then we're going to go out to the beach afterwards. There we go. So let's tell everybody who you are, and then we'll dive in, okay? Sounds wonderful. Gloria Squatero is the birth mother of Taryn Andrew and the cosmic mother of Alex Nick Peepo? Piper? Peepo. Peepo and Anna. Squatera has an INFJ personality, introverted, intuitive, feeling, judging. She's an advocate and dreamer who takes concrete steps to realize her goals and make a long and lasting positive impact. Helping others is her purpose, but not through charity. Her passion is to get to the heart of issues so people need to not be rescued at all. Gloria has been married to her husband, Funk, for over 40 years. She became his campaign manager by default and has the rare distinction of being the only first lady in America that was legally banned from the city hall office where her husband, the mayor, worked. We're going to get back to that in a little bit. Squatero Squatero has a bachelor's in psychology and is published in Harper's Magazine. Her memoir, May Cause Drowsiness and Blurred Vision, The Side Effects of Bravery, is the first in her three-book Come On Funk series. She lives in Washington, D.C., surrounded by some of her flock. And you live here part-time, right? I I do. Long Beach, New York? I I commute back and forth because I'm really not a big city girl. Right. Well, I would commute from Kansas to here because Well, the ocean is a good inspiration for writing, for sure. And a change of location also is inspirational for writing. Nice. So it helps. And I'm going to add this last line that's in your bio. It's her calling to make every husband on earth feel grateful they're not married to her. What does that even mean? I succeed at that, too. (laughs) (laughs) It means um, that probably nobody... Well, actually, I used to teach childbirth classes. Oh, wow. Natural childbirth classes. So every week, I'd have six couples sitting on my dining room floor full of pregnancy. And whatever I do, I do pretty passionately. So if I feel something about like pregnancy for instance I had two unnecessary cesareans and never dreamt of becoming a birth instructor but I did not want women to ever go through what I went through if if I could help it you know to to have your body sliced open for no good reason other than it makes money it's a money maker a cesarean and so was pretty passionate about that subject and had people on my dining room floor for 17 years, teaching them how not to get cut open. And the men in there, particularly, um, would be, you know, preach it, or you're so irreverent, (laughs) and things like that. And, but yet they loved me. My students adored me, and it was mutual affection. But basically, you know, I would say it was a joke that I said, you know, the the byproduct of you coming to class is that you're going to leave so grateful you're not married to me. 
and, <laughs> and that's where that originated. That's funny. I think that people probably think of that of me and my husband as well, right? There you go. My husband's very patient. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up in Bethpage, New York, which is on Long Island. And Long Island is just a series of small little towns. And so really, I grew up 13 miles from the ocean, went to the ocean every summer. Oh, wow. Um, and, but it was a small town upbringing. You know, on field trips, we went into the city, New York City, um, scared the shit out of all of us little yeah. kids. Um, so moving um, from there at 15 uh, to, the, to the desert in Arizona for nine months, we lasted there. Um, Why did you guys move? So I think my dad was a roofer. And he okay. basically said Long Island was totally built up. There was no more opportunity for him. They're starting this new city in, in Lake Havasu City, Arizona. They dismantled the London Bridge in London and built it in Lake Havasu City. Oh, wow. And build it and they will come. And my father went. Uh, so he went from being a roofer there in New York to a roofer in the desert, which who can roof? Right. In 100 degree weather. I was going to say that's got a big change. Right. So quickly tossed that and, and, and he started a fish business in the desert. So, so you we, stayed in Arizona? We stayed there. Just new business? We made it for nine months because okay. we had to go to Las Vegas every Friday to get fish off the plane oh, since okay. there's no ocean in the yeah. desert. Um, so anyways, lasted there nine months, moved to Florida because now he's going to go roof there. It's hot there. Anyways, there still, all my family lives in Florida now. Okay. Um, but I moved to West Virginia, loved it there. Uh, the whole back to land movement. I never saw a mountain before. It How did you end up in West Virginia? My brother was living, this is in the 70s when people were starting the whole off the grid living. Okay. And, you know, I went to a different high school for every year of high school. Wow. And so I, I went from having a big friend base as a teenager to having really no friends. And in West Virginia, it was kind of like, it wasn't a commune, but every night people got together to have dinner. Okay to play music, and I loved that community feel. And so I stayed. I, I stayed in West Virginia, met Funk. Um, since he was a professor and I was a student, they weren't gonna let us stay together. We had to move. We moved to Nashville. We stayed there 10 years. I absolutely loved it there. Okay, let's circle back around real quick. I'm not sure. gonna let you go by certain things. So he was a professor, you were a student. Was mm -hmm. he ever your professor? Mm -hmm. No. No, we just, I... How'd you guys meet then? So we had a mutual friend. Okay. And I didn't realize that I was being set up on a blind date. The okay. friend asked me to come to dinner, but it was actually to meet this guy who we called Funk. And so I forgot about the dinner because I'm like 19 and who friggin' goes to dinners at 19 right. anyways? And so, anyways, I, the next day in the cafeteria, school cafeteria, I see my friend and the guy, 
funk, this guy funk, who I was being set up with. Um, and they're like, where were you last night? And I'm like, oh, I didn't know. And then I heard that it's a blind date. And I said, I really didn't know that. Yeah. And, you know, funk looked like almost insulted that I had, you know, stood them up. <laughs> and so we got in an argument, like right there. Oh, right when you met? First meeting, got in an argument, probably a week later, Met him at, you know, there's one bar in town. It's West Virginia. Like, nobody lives yeah. there. Met him at this bar that everybody went to. Good music place. Great music. Bluegrass music. And anyways, you know, I saw him come in, and I was, like, just turned the other way. And he comes up. He's, like, gunning for me. Like, he's like, are you avoiding me? I'm like, no, I'm not avoiding you. But I was a little intimidated. By him. He's nine years older. He's a professor. Like, I'm a hippie. He's, a, he's pretty tall compared to you. He's six foot eight. And you're how tall? I'm five foot four. Okay. I never noticed that he was tall, though. Really? Yeah. Okay. No, and I don't notice that my kids are tall. Yeah. And they are. I mean, I look up to everybody in my family, but... Everybody's just been taller. I so. feel like they're all shorter than me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That tells you something about me. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um... My kids are... But you couldn't hide from him because he could see you in he, that room, right? <laughs> he's a head taller so than everybody yeah. else. He notices me. Anyways, he asked me out on a date. This is the 70s. People didn't date anymore. Okay. He's nine years older, though, so his generation still dates. Yeah. Anyways, I forget about that date, too. My girlfriend and I, my roommate, go to this bar. It's Friday Music is playing. People keep buying us drinks. We don't realize, like, I really don't drink. Like, I drank when I was 13. Right. Got all my drinking out of the way at 13. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, Why were really, you drinking at 13? Because that's what we did in New York then. Okay. Like, every Friday, we, my friends and I went into what's called the Sump, which okay. is just a, it's a huge, it's a size of a football field about 100 feet down. Everywhere on Long Island, neighborhoods have this because it catches the rainwater because, you know, below, so close to the ocean. Okay. Anyways, we'd go in there, build a bonfire, and drink around the fire every Friday night. Ooh, so that's what I... Oh, my God, it was fun. Um, but anyways, I just didn't have... I, I, it did nothing for me once I left New York. Anyways, so people are buying us drinks. I'm not used to drinking. And it's like, oh, my God, like... So I'm drunk, and so and then I'm starving. And so it's like, come on, let's go to the cafeteria and get dinner. We go, it's two, two hours past the time oh. that it closes. That's where I'm supposed to meet Funk. I show up drunk, and he's still waiting on me. Still waiting on me. We get in a fight at the end of that date, so the second time <laughs> we meet. And anyways, we've been ever, together ever since. But you moved because he was a professor. The you school were a would not allow it. Did, so did you finish school out there? No. I went okay. to four different colleges as well. Okay. Because we moved so much. So why Nashville? Um, because when the school told Funk, give me up or give the job up, he gave the job up. That was in the summer. His friend in Nashville, his professor, invited him down there just as a friend thing. 
Okay. And then found out Funk was without a job, and the guy hired him right on the spot. Oh, wow. His old professor. Okay. And that's how we got, Funk got into auditing. You know, it's not like a financial auditor. It's different. It's auditing government programs, making sure the programs work for the people the way it's designed to work. So okay. that's what, and he also had a uh, MSW, a social worker's degree. Okay. Um, so it's always been about the bigger people picture. Where did you get your bachelorette in psychology from? I actually graduated from Nashville. Okay. So the university there. What were you going to do with it? What was your plan to do? I had no plan to use my college degree. I only went to college to escape my mother because she made me feel guilty for leaving her in Florida. Okay. And so, but then I went to school, like I never learned anything past when I moved from high school in New York. Yeah. Ninth grade, because you don't learn anything when you move to nine different, yeah. you know, four different schools, high schools. Um, always hated school, was so bored in school. Well, I went to college to escape my mother's guilt and loved college. Like just, I. I didn't know that I loved education. Yeah. And so I took psych courses, philosophy courses, um, and just fell in love with it. And so I, I did. I didn't do it for any reason. Any job I've ever had, I fell into. It wasn't a big plan. It right. was just I fell into it. It's just what was, what was happening. So you guys were in Nashville for how long? Ten years. Had my daughter, Tara. Okay. And decided I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Okay. I, I was never just a stay-at-home mom, but I wanted to be with them, my kids. Um, so I'd work when Funk came home from work, but to make up for my salary, because who knew if I was going to get anything starting my own business, Right. We, he had to find a job that covered my salary. Okay. He applied for the city auditor position in Kansas City first job he applied for, he was hired. Oh, wow. And we moved to Kansas City. Okay, so how did he even find that job? Um, I uh, Honestly, I think back then you looked in like the, the newspaper. Paper. I don't know how he found it, but I said I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. He said, okay, I'll find a different job. And and he he tells me there's a job in Kansas City. I'm gonna, I applied for it. They want me out for an interview. I said, I'm not moving to freaking Kansas no, City. Say, okay, what was yeah. your thought process on yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, to me, all I ever heard was, it was like Dodge City, Kansas, right? right? It's like Cowtown. Right. And I'm, it's like, and I should have known then. Anytime I say I'm never doing whatever. You do it. I do it. Like, <laughs> it's a given. Like, God punishes me. It's like, do not say you're, you're going not all doing in anything. on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he gets that job. How long before you guys are in Kansas City after that? Pretty quickly? Oh, my God. So they want him there in two weeks. I, I never been there. So I go out with him after they hired him um, because I don't know what they were doing. But the city council basically took him out to dinner. Oh, we went to look for a place to live. Okay. And I never left my kid before. 
So my mother, I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, flew in to watch my daughter. She was a terrible mom to me. Why I forced her on my own <laughs> I kid. Didn't think um, but anyways, went to Kansas City. They put us up on the plaza, this really exclusive place called the plaza. Uh, met all the council people and saw that Kansas City was just, you know, a regular place. And I said, okay. So put my house on the market nine days later it sold and three days after that we moved and that was what year that was in 1988 okay so for quite a while and so we were he promised me we'll only be here two years and uh -huh. we'll find somewhere you like and blah and you know we I How started a business start lived there the longest I'd ever lived anywhere 23 years Wow yeah. you said you started a business I started several businesses okay. there. Um, the first one was just taking in kids after school, babysitting, okay. so I could stay home with my kids. And then I had an unnecessary cesarean, and I started a birthing business. Yep. And then people started asking me to attend their births. So I started going to births and became a doula. And then I got you know, certification for that because we all thought insurance would cover it. It never did. Um, but anyways, I started a birth business that was um, teaching classes, attending births, and then training doulas. But for me, unlike you, Erin, who has stuck it out, um, the hardest part of my job was dealing with staff. Yeah. Like, I could not fathom a doula ever leaving a mother in labor because right. they were tired. It's like, what did you think when you took this yeah. job? Babies Do come job. at night, yeah. you're tired. Like, and so I expected women to have the same work ethic as me and they didn't and I'm probably not as nice as you um, mm -hmm. and I just wouldn't tolerate that. So. I was gonna say there's probably a lot of people that would say no, Aaron's not nice when it comes to that. Well, right? you, you've been here for three hours, and I think you're really nice. I want to circle back around why you thought the C-section. So fun, another fun fact of something we have in common, I had two C-sections. And I think this might be something we don't have in common. I am all about C-sections for me. I, my first one was a total emergency C-section. So the second one, the day I walked into the doctor because I was in a different city, they said, we won't do VBAC. So if that's what you're gonna do. And I was like, listen, the first one went fine. And essentially I had a C-section and four days later, I had an appendectomy, right? So I had a lot of surgery all within a week and then a bit of a recovering time. But I also had some friends that had natural births and they had just as long a recovering ties. So for me, I've never really dove into it. It worked for me um, because I was a single mom with both of them. Mm -hmm. I was very, you know, I kind of felt like I was doing all the things I wasn't supposed to do anyways because I didn't breastfeed so that people could help me with bottles and stuff like that because I didn't have another person there and I had to go yeah. back to work within three, four weeks, right? right? So for me, it just never has been a conversation, but uh, hearing you say about the C-section, I want to kind of get into your thought process on that. So I grew up like totally believing in authority figures. Okay. So doctors, cops clergy, yeah. um, all of that, and with pretty much a childlike innocence with that. And so with my cesarean, 
I was, um, you know, I'm married to a guy who's six foot eight. I was a nine pound baby myself um, back when babies were like six pounds right. in the 1950s. And my mother had all her babies quick, quick and no problem. And even some of them were breech, some of them were, you know, posterior presentation, I'm nine pounds. And she had quick, easy. How many babies did your mom have? My, five. Okay, you said all, so that sounded like a lot. Yeah, yeah five. So anyways, I'm going, this is back when you had a vaginal exam every time. Every time you went to the doctor, mm -hmm. you had a vaginal exam. And when I'm 42 weeks pregnant, they do another vaginal exam and discover my pelvis is suddenly too small to let this baby out. And that if I tried, I would kill her and I would probably die myself. Okay. And, and given that I was innocent and trusted authority, I believed that with my whole heart and I was terrified of having surgery. Okay. And, and had that surgery, had my daughter. They took her away immediately. I heard her crying across the operating room. I felt nothing. Okay. I felt nothing for her crying. And I'm like, I'm her mom now. I'm supposed to feel something. And it wasn't until three weeks later that that mothering instinct kicked in. You know that instinct that yeah. would make you kill for your kid? Yeah. That didn't happen for me until three weeks later. Okay. I saw Funk coming in from the dining room, much like he did just now. Today. Yeah. <laughs> right before you kicked him out. <laughs> he didn't know what we were yeah, doing. <laughs> um, and saw him coming in. I'm nursing Tara. And I'm, and I'm thinking, I wish he would die. Like, really? just leave me alone with this kid. I just want to be alone with my baby. And that's when the mothering instinct kicked in. Okay. The minute he was walking through the dining room. And then my second thought was, well, maybe he doesn't have to die. He does do the laundry and stuff. So, <laughs> like, I'll let him live and I'll just, me and Tara will be alone. Right. Like, you know, at any rate. So bonding was real interrupted. For some reason, I always had a passion and a fascination with pregnancy. And so I started reading books about how to have a natural birth after a cesarean. And this was unheard of yeah. in the 80s, right? VBACs, it was unheard of. At any rate, I got so, anything that I am fascinated by, I become obsessed by. Yeah. So now I'm Me reading, I've, I've read all the natural birth books. So now I'm starting on midwifery textbooks. And I start reading about my cesarean and how unnecessary it was. Like, like, that's not what I was supposed to be getting from this textbook, but everything, you know, basically, there's no way to tell how, how much a pelvis will move right. to let a baby out. So size doesn't mean anything unless you've had a trial of labor. And any, anyways, it just made sense from what I had read, the research, that I had had an unnecessary cesarean. And I was gonna make damn sure I didn't have another one. Moved to Kansas City, not even a midwife would take me because I had another cesarean. And that really pissed me off because what woman 
is going to keep another woman down. Right. Right? Because somehow you're a midwife and yet you're buying into all the medical but jargon. But it comes to their insurance and all of that stuff too, right? They, lay midwives don't have insurance. Okay. So, so why wouldn't a midwife do it? They don't want to take the risk. I mean, people weren't having... So even not insurance, but it would fall on them if... I guess they were afraid, you know, yeah. if something happened, they, they'd be caught. You know, midwifery yeah. is illegal. It was illegal okay. in Missouri back oh, wow. then. So they were all practicing under the radar. Okay. So that's why. But they didn't want anything to do with it if you'd had a C-section. That's right. Because and now I think there's quite a few doctors that will do it. Not as many, but it's, it's coming, it's making a, I don't know if making a comeback is the right word, but there are doctors that will do VBACs. Yeah, well, with my son, I found a doctor that had done 40, all 100% successfully at St. Luke's on the plaza, and went with her because she assured me that it didn't matter what size my baby was. But then you, know, you had a C-section, right? Then I had a C-section because she really didn't believe her talk. And oh. so she was afraid of how big this baby was getting. And so in studying further, so for my third child, that never happened. Um, I read more textbooks and discovered that this weird vaginal exam she did on me that I knew was different than the hundred I had before that was her stripping my waters. Oh. So my water broke so that the baby couldn't grow fast enough. And now my water's broken, there's a time limit. And yeah, I had another cesarean. So I developed a real mistrust after that towards a medical establishment. And in time, I also view it as a, as a woman issue. Yeah. Uh, also, I was never raised a feminist. I come from an Italian family. They don't believe women exist, much right. less have a voice. Um, <laughs> and Anyways, that really started my path of becoming a strong woman, unintentionally. I didn't set well, out to become a strong woman, but yeah. life happened and I became one. That's so crazy. Um, so with your second C-section, you, you still believe that that was unnecessary? My second cesarean, I believed that it was necessary until I read what that doctor had done without my permission. The, the water. Yeah. Breaking the water. And that's when I decided to become a natural childbirth yeah. instructor so that this didn't happen to other women. Would you have rather recovered with surgery and, and um, this is where my mind is, this is how my crazy mind works, are you ready? With stitches down there though? Like would you have rather, you really think you would have rather recovered like that versus? Well, so you're talking about if, if your baby had been 10 pounds yeah you would have definitely had stitches there's no that also is a money-making procedure totally unnecessary if you look at uh western medicine versus midwifery you will see that midwives have a much lower maternal mortality rate much lower fetal mortality rate they rarely do episiotomies, no matter how big the babies are. Their cesarean section rate is more in line with the World Health Organization's rate, which at that time was 5%. Um, there is a midwifery practice that's been in existence since the 70s in Tennessee. It's called the Farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Um, 
they have a cesarean section rate of less than 2% oh, wow. and have and the maternal and fetal mortality rates are almost non-existent compared to our maternal mortality rate is rising in this country our infant mortality rate there are 26 industrialized nations like ours we are number 24 so almost the worst yeah. in infant mortality for all of our high-tech intervention. Well, that should tell you that the interventions are causing the deaths. Right. And that's what I discovered for sure in my field. So how long did you do that? How 17 long? years. 17 years, all while in Kansas City? All in Kansas City until Funk decided to ruin my life by running for mayor. What's that conversation? What, which conversation? What's the conversation when he decides to run for mayor? Oh, because you're making it sound in the second, and maybe it is, you're making it sound like it was his decision. But you guys have a pretty strong marriage, so I imagine there was some sort of conversation. Yeah, there it. was a conversation. There was a conversation for probably two years. Um, so he's the city auditor. Mm -hmm. So he sees where citizens are being screwed and wants to fix that. He was hired to fix that. And yet, he presents a report to the city council and the council is the one that has to act on the reports. Okay. So he has a lot of power, but he doesn't have the power to change anything. And so the councils are getting worse and worse and worse. So all the tiffs that were happening uh, in Kansas City at the time um, in the early 2000s. So we're building more hotels, more office buildings. There's lots of people getting rich off of it. And yet we don't have enough police because there's no money to fund right. police. The education system sucks. There's the, the, the streets are being lined with steel plates, metal plates. So Funk decides that he's gone as far as he could. And the only way to fix Kansas City was to become mayor and had the power himself. And so for two years, you know, come home every night at dinner, complaining about what the city council did, you know, this time and this and that. And we're getting ready to leave on this trip to Europe that I'd been planning forever. And we're sitting at a car wash and it's three weeks before we're ready to go. And we have this checklist of everything that would have to fall into place for him to be able to run for mayor. And if he's gonna do it, he has to do it when we're back from this trip from Europe, right? Yeah. Because this is, this is the timing of it. And so we're sitting at the car wash, we're waiting for our car to get done, and I'm like, so Funk, where are we with this? And he's like, you know, I don't know, do you have your list? And I'm like, yeah, I have the list. And so we go through the list and there's one big check mark that's not checked off. But so he's like, well, I guess I can't do it. What was it? What was it? Yeah. So every mayor in Kansas City, because the salary is so low, Funk took a $75,000 cut in pay to oh, wow. run for mayor because every mayor has a second job. Well, he couldn't keep his job because he right. worked for the city. So he had uh, a deal set up with UMKC. So he had a job set up with that, but it, it was a handshake. It, it wasn't a contract yet. Oh, okay. 
And so we don't have a contract, but yes, they're going to do this thing. And he's like, but it's just a handshake. I guess, you know, we can't do it. And he looks crestfallen about it. Funk rarely asks for anything. This is something I know he wants. Yeah. He wants it bad. And I, I say, fuck it. We'll do it. Yeah. Let's do it. And so, yeah, we made that decision sitting on a park bench outside the car wash. Oh, wow. And then what's it look like? Because we just in Kansas City just went through a pretty intense yeah. meter race, right? Yeah. And I'm, to be really, really blunt with you, I think it's really the first time I've ever paid attention. Yeah. Only because I think I'm getting to the age that you start to pay attention just naturally. Yeah. And then I was moving my business to Kansas City. I've never lived on the Kansas mm. City side. So that played a big part into it. And then now with social media, it's everywhere, right? You can't miss it. Um, and it, part of it has become who's playing a better social media game at the end of the day. That becomes a big part of the campaign, right? So when you guys are all in, what does life now look like after that bench conversation? What changes? What did you think would happen too? Like, what did you think that meant for your life and how close were you to your, what you believed your life would look like after that? So what I thought at the time is that that this was Funk's thing, right? And and that I, I knew Funk would be mayor. I mean, I knew if he was deciding to run, he was going to win. Yeah. So I knew he was going to be mayor on the park bench. I knew, okay, well, Funk's the mayor, and and I'm thinking, okay, so he's already like, you know. He goes, he's the first one at the office. He's the last one to leave the office. This is going to be even worse. Like, he's going to be working even more. Yeah. And so what I decide is that, okay, well, I can't let this ruin my family. Right. Like, we've worked really hard to have a close family, to be How family people. Um so my daughter my daughter had just started college okay and it was my son's junior year okay when this went down of high school of high school um and so but we had these other two kids and then all my kids friends came to our house okay and we always had dinner at 5 30. without fail that was just gospel in our house because this is family time and so I made, when we got home from the car wash, I agreed that he could run. I was good with it. Then that night I come down with a list and I, it was 10 things. Funk will. At the end of eight years of being mayor, funk will. Okay. And it was 10 things. One was be home at dinner for 530 every night still, because okay. that's, I wanted to make sure that stayed the same. The last thing on the list was we get to do everything that I want to do after the eight years are up. For the okay. rest of his life, I own him. We do what, he, <laughs> okay. what I want to do. Um, but that's how I thought I'd be involved, is that I'd make Funk come home for dinner and be with his children. Um, but then he can't openly run, so someone has to set up his campaign headquarters you know, under the radar so that nobody knows he's running. Because if, 
if the council find out he's running, then they're not going to take his report seriously, and he can't let that happen because he's Mr. Ethical. And so I have to set up his campaign headquarters. Well, I'm really good at organizing. Wait, for how long can he not openly run? Until he quits his job at City Hall. Got it. So we come back from Europe in July. Okay. And he quits his job at City Hall, I think, on like November 19th or something oh, like so that. Oh, there's a couple months in there. Oh, yeah. A couple of months where I'm setting up. Okay. First, finding a place to rent that right. he could afford, that we could afford, because he doesn't have any backers, right? He's mm -hmm. a populist mayor. Um, can't let anybody know he's running. So at any rate, I find the place. It's a double-wide trailer. It works. Uh, I get the electricity set up the internet on, I think I'm going home now. And he's like, well, like, we need some chairs and computers. It's like, Jesus Christ, Funk, you <laughs> said, find the place. I found right. the place. Right. So I make all the purchases and this and that. He quits. He does, he quits on a Friday. He does his press conference on a Monday in the trailer. And, you know, so it's me, Funk and Dottie at the trailer, so all the media blow in, it's intense, they blow out two hours later, we're sitting there like exhausted. Right, like what just happened? Yeah, exactly, what the hell just happened? And oh, by the way, Funk, like you freaking knocked that out of the park. Like yeah. where the hell did that come from? And you know, he's pumped. He's like, he's ready for this, he's already mayor. And so he goes out to the flea market, gets us lunch, we sit down in his office, we start eating lunch, and then the phones ring. And I set up six lines for him, and I'm thinking Dottie is gonna go answer these phones, and Funk and I can talk over this, yeah. like what the hell just happened? And then the next line starts ringing, and then all, all six lines down. are lit, and there's no volunteers. So I start answering the friggin' phones, and oh, I wow. never stopped. Wow. I became his campaign manager by default. He had by two, but... Who's Dottie? What's she do? Dottie was his right arm at City Hall. And so Funk wouldn't let me tell anybody that he was running. But I'm like, I'm Italian. We're schemers. Right. And I'm like, he's a chess player. He should be thinking 10 moves ahead. Right. He's not thinking any moves ahead. He's still being the city auditor. And I'm like... Funk, like, like when you announce, you're going to need somebody to answer the phone. Like, right. So I tell Dottie, she says, I'm quitting. I'm going I'm to do what I'm doing down at the trail for Funk. I said, he can't pay you. And she said, okay, like as, as soon as he's mayor, then I'll just go to work for him there. I'm like, well, I'm sure he would want you, but you're not going to be paid for six months. Right. And she's like, okay. And so Dottie's his longtime right, right arm woman at City Hall. Followed him to the campaign, followed him to the mayor's office. So at that point when he, when the phones start ringing, right, after he makes it, what do you think your life's going to be as having the husband who's the mayor? Running a campaign. First of all, I'm apolitical in terms of government. Um, uh, I see politics in relationships, in being a woman in our country, of uh, being a woman in a family. 
but government politics, that's all Funk's thing. Right. So I don't think anything except Funk's going to carry on doing what he's doing. Right. Um, I forget your question. Well, I'm just saying at that point, it's exciting, right? So what's exciting? Six phones start ringing the second you guys say it. No, it's not exciting. There was no time to think. Yeah. There was no, it, it was literally out of the box, running full tilt sprint, and it never stopped. There was no time to think about what the so hell is happening here. you feeling excited at all? You know what I remember feeling at certain points? Like, so I love my husband. Right. I'm helping him with his dream. I'm not necessarily like a believer in his dream. Like, I'm just a supportive wife. Right. I had a conversion when I went to a forum on the east side. Walk in over crumbling sidewalks. Yeah. Little old black women with all these kids set up this forum. And half the council was running for mayor. So half the council's up on the dais. There's 12 people running for mayor. And those council people were telling them, basically, look at everything I've done for you. Don't you want me to be mayor now? And I'm thinking, like, what are these women fools? Like, yeah. we, we all walked in over these crumbling streets. This right. looks like a war zone over here. Right. Like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Right. It's a mile from my house in Brookside. It looks like bombed out Beirut. Yeah. I walk out of that and I'm sitting in his car and I just feel, feel this overwhelming presence fill the car. And it's like, all I kept hearing in my head is, Funk is gonna do a whole lot of good for a whole lot of people. Right. And I turned to him and I'm like, Funk, like, do you realize? I'm like, I'm overcome with holy now, right? I got. Right. I got spirit in me. It's moving all <laughs> through the car. I'm hunkering down low because I'm scared. This is like a power is in this car. Right. Like I've never felt before. And I turn and I'm like, Funk, do you realize that you have an opportunity to do a whole lot of good for a whole lot of people? He looks at me like I'm out of my mind. He's like, Gloria, what the hell do you think I've been doing here? Like, <laughs> yeah. This like, is what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so I become a believer in the dream okay. after that. And, and I'm all in after that. But I still didn't think I'd have any part right. in, the, in the after that, right? right. It's, so how do we get to the point where you get legally, legally banned from Well, CEO? I didn't even know that first ladies existed outside of the pre presidency. Yeah. So I'm sitting in my office at the trailer and I hear... This is after he's, no, he's won? No, no. okay. This is in the middle of the campaign. Okay. I hear, I overhear a reporter in the lobby talking to another reporter on the phone. And he's like, oh, she's gonna make a great first lady. And that's the first time I thought, oh my God, like I'm gonna have a role in this yeah. after he's mayor. And that was like, that was not okay. Like I planned on having my own life. <laughs> this is Funk's thing. I'm, you know, I'm supposed to set up the headquarters. Now I'm his campaign manager. And now there's, there's another something else. Now there's a, like, yeah. Like what kind of bullshit is this? Yeah. And so anyways, but then I had whatever this thing happened in the car. 
And so like every other campaign manager, you follow the person into office. Right. So we're sitting on the couch the day after he wins, and he's like, you know, so I wrote a weekly newsletter from the campaign, very intimate newsletter, and Funk really believed that was a part of him winning the mayorship. Okay. Because it's the mayor connecting with regular folks, right? right? Citizens are craving the intimacy, the connection. He's like, when you write the newsletter, you know, the, when you write the first mayor newsletter, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? What are you talking about? What newsletter? And he's like, well, you're going to keep doing the newsletter, right? I mean, this is what they want. And I'm like, Funk, I can't possibly write a newsletter if I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I could write it because in your campaign, I saw everything. I won't be up there. And he's like, well, why can't you be up there? And I was like, because I'm not up there. Like, I, I don't work for the city. Yeah. Yeah. And so at any rate, that's how it started. And again, since I'm now a believer, I'm a believer in... I'm obsessed when I get right. into something, and I'm running full tilt with him nice. to make this opportunity that he's supposed to be doing really happen. And that's what got me banned okay. from City Hall, is that Funk and I make a really formidable team. We should not be married. We are so different. But it works but it for works. us, yeah. right? Because we are different. and it, that's, That's how my why husband it's gonna, and I are too. Yeah. Right. And your new business partner. Right. Well, she's, yeah, our COO, not business partner, but. All right. Whatever <laughs> yeah. she is. But yeah, because she's so opposite, right? You exactly. have to have those people that, that kind of even you out. That's right. But Okay, so you're up there, but then how do you get banned? So, so here's the real reason. Okay. From my, where I sit. Yeah. Right? You're looking at me from where I sit. This is my truth. So... Funk does exactly what he says he's going to do. Going to do. He's going to shore up the city's finances. The city was approaching bankruptcy, just like Detroit. He's going to he's going to shore up the finances. Well, a lot of people had been taking money from the city, right? And no schools, no streets, no cops. Yeah. And you know, when you tie people's hands that had free freedom of the till, they don't just go away just because you're elected mayor. Right. Like they worked from the moment he got elected to make sure he wasn't reelected. He slipped in under the radar. Nobody took him seriously. He was irrelevant. So they never ran against him. Okay. Never expected Funk to win. And now he did, and they're going to make damn sure he doesn't get reelected. And so how do you take a person that's been exalted in the media for 18 years, the guru of the city, and say he's, you know, trash. Well, you can't do that. Yeah. So what do you do next? Well, you, it's John and Yoko Ono. You right. come after his wife. And that's right. what happened. And that's why I was banned. Because Funk, I was banned because Funk was doing what he said he was going to do. Right. That's why I was banned. Did he only, he was only one term, right? He was one term. They but. succeeded. Like he almost doing it his way early on I saw like three months into his term I'm like Funk you gotta hire a shark right. like they're coming after you like we we don't know what we're doing here right. like you're doing Mr. Goody Two Shoes that doesn't work with the mayor thing like 
clearly you yeah. have to grab hold of the power. It's not given to you. Right. And so I wanted him to hire Steve Glorioso, who was the ultimate shark. Okay. Ultimate. And Funk was having none of it. Right? He's going to do it by the book. Okay. He's going to do it his way. And I'm like, Funk, okay. You want to lose? Do it your way. But I'm telling you, we need a shark. We need to deflect the the nobody called it fake news at the time yeah but we need to deflect the fake news off of us and onto the real news what if you would have had twitter and facebook and those types of things no what if we would have had a shark like steve glorioso right we would he would have been reelected. i think they would have lifted the two-term limit because funk would have done he would have done there the schools would be better the crime the crime was getting better yeah um the, the finances were stabilized. They didn't go bankrupt. I think he would have had more terms than even two. Wow. He only lost by 1,100 votes. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was catching up, doing it his way. You know what I found fascinating this past election? That a lot of the votes that helped win were actually um, the ballots, the early ballots. Um, versus, because this year on the election, it was a rainy day and just not as many people get out, right? Unless it's super important, the kind of people that sit on the line. But it was the, uh, I saw some stats where it was those early votes that, that really helped. So I do wonder how much is changing now, right? So that's interesting. The, the day of the election, the first one, phones are ringing off the wall at the headquarters and people are saying they punch Funk's name they leave the booth, they look down at their ticket to make sure everything's right and see Alvin Brooks's name is punched. Oh. So they go back in. At any rate, somehow there was some rigged. Something was going on. There was something rigged. So the early ballots isn't probably done in a voting booth. That's like a right. fill in, you send in. You send or, it in. Yeah. So. And I happen to know that it was a part of the street team for well, it was Quentin Lucas who won this year, so it was part of his street team's um, goal to go out, shake hands, and say, would you like to register to vote? Now let's get your early vote in, right? Yeah. But I found that very interesting, um, especially in a day where uh, most things become digital, how important going out was for, yeah. for that campaign. Um, okay, so you do that, you guys don't, do, you don't win the second, second term. What do you do after that? Well, that's also very interesting what we did after that. Um, so, so Kansas City is my kid's hometown. Okay. You know, my son was born there. My daughter was there since she was almost four. Yeah. And so that's home to them. Funk had many offers during his 18 years at City Hall um, to go places for tons more money. Like San Diego was one of them. Wow. This is like back in the early 90s for $250,000. Like I couldn't even figure out how I would spend that kind of money back then. Right. right? But we turned it down because... Much less the house you would have bought in resale value, right? Yeah, exactly. What an idiot. <laughs> and I would have been living on the beach and it would have been warm. Um, but in Kansas City it was cold then. Right. But at any rate, uh, never moved though because I didn't want my kids to experience what I did as a teenager. The moving right? around. So a lot, we yeah. we stayed put. 
So at any rate, long story short, Funk gets blacklisted. They want to make sure that this guy not only doesn't win the election, but never runs again. And so every job that he had the next day was unhad. So at the mm. University of Kansas, at UMKC, at, even in Columbia, the university there, any job that he thought he had, uh, he no longer had. And so we realized he was never going to work again. Yeah. And we were forced to move from my kid's childhood home in Kansas City to he got offers two different places um, that he was interested in. One was a job in Austin, Texas, and I said, no way in hell am I going to Austin, <laughs> Texas. And the other one was in Washington, D.C., and I said, well, I don't really want to go there either. And he's right. like, Gloria, pick one. And I said, well, let's go back east. I haven't lived back on the East Coast right. since 15. Let's go there. And now he's kind of holding up his end of the deal. He's letting you do your thing, right? Uh, you know what? I've learned <laughs> now that I have stepped into the decade of my 50s and yeah. now 60s, went from giving a shit to maybe only giving half a shit. Uh -huh. I've learned that Funk always gets what he wants. He just never friggin' asks for it. Okay. Like, and I'm on to this sucker now, yeah. right? But you've been married how long to him? 40 years. You should be. I'm yeah, doing yeah <laughs> I know. It's slow on the uptake, especially for an Italian. Yeah. But anyways, we're still friggin' doing Funk's thing. Yeah, but, but you wrote a book. And you're I writing wrote, a book series. I am. And he's being a big supporter. This guy was supposed to take care of the marketing. And who's uh, sitting here with you on this podcast? <laughs> But right. me, right. not funk. Right. Yeah. Well, you're on this podcast because he can't tell your story better than you. Yeah. Right? Don't stick up for him. Everybody does. <laughs> I'm not sticking up for him. <laughs> but essentially, you are now getting to live your dreams. You might still be helping him live some of his, but right? Uh, I'm, mostly, I'm kidding with you. Yeah. 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 I have always lived my dreams. Right. I have always had a dream and went for it. And I have never failed at any dream that I ever had, right. except for getting Funk reelected mayor. And I still, I still am disappointed about that because I did believe in the dream and I right. knew what could have been done. And I really feel bad that he didn't get to finish what he started. That's not really feeling though, because you did get elected, you, you, he did get elected mayor, just not two terms. Yeah, but so it's still, like a half I helped him right. with the second one, right? Yeah. And so I didn't succeed in that. For him. I'm telling you, any other thing that I put my mind to, I win. So now you've become an author. I've become an and author. Why? Excuse me? Why? Why write books now? That, that's, I never set out to write a book, mm -hmm. but when we took that trip to Europe, I was keeping a travel journal so that when I'm dead, my kids will look back on this big adventure we took as a family. Right. And before long, the words became quotes and became she said, he said, and then the whole mayor thing happened. And it just, it turned into an 1100 page manuscript. Wow. And then I got friggin' banned from City Hall. And you know, people wanna know about that. Yeah. I don't know why, but they do. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's turned into a three-book series. And just won some awards. 
It did. It's, um, it's won two book cover awards, which, you know, I made my co cover artist crazy, but, you know, he in the end thanked me yeah. um, for pushing him outside his comfort zone and doing something completely out of the genre. It's not yeah. done, this kind of cover for memoir. But people love the cover, and it's won awards for that. It's been nominated uh, for best book, uh, nonfiction, uh, indie book for 2020. Okay. So we'll know in January oh, wow. if I've won that or not. Yeah. Um, and I've landed a book bub deal, which in in author world, that's like one of the most coveted features you could possibly get. Um, and that's only because of the exposure that you get by people that don't know about you. Right. Um, Fabulous reviews on Amazon from what I've seen. Some really good reviews yeah. on Amazon. There's like 50 of them. I would like that number to be 500,000. Right. Um, Gotta crawl before you walk. Sometimes start. people tell me, I think you're a lot like me. <laughs> right? Sometimes you're like, gotta crawl first and then start running, right? No, so, I, I just run. Just wanna run, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, give us just a real quick, um, just a real quick description of what the book series is about. There's an underlying thread in it, in all three of them, and that is about having anxiety mm -hmm. and... Which is what I find fascinating, because I don't it, think a lot of people talk about it enough, right? You know what? There's an epidemic mm -hmm. of loneliness and anxiety in our country. There's an epidemic of suicide. Um, people have anxiety. Nobody's talking about it. It's right. still kind of taboo, right? right. Um, so it's about having anxiety and having so many controls put on my life by myself, self-imposed, to stay peaceful, to not have an anxiety attack, until I woke up and realized one day, my world has shrunk so far, this is not what you call living. Right. Like, so what's the worst that can happen? I'm gonna be afraid. Right. And so I'm gonna go for my dreams. And so it's about kinda setting up a ritual for myself to become a new and better me. Okay. One that's more carefree, living a bigger life. And, and I'm gonna start by going to Europe, something I wanted to do forever but was too afraid. I, I don't fly, so I'm gonna get, get there. Do you fly now? I do fly now, do fly after now. 20 years. I started again in 2016, but for my sister who was in poor health and I wanted to take her to Hawaii for alternative treatment. Okay. And so that made me get on a plane. She died three days before we left, oh. um, unexpectedly. But you took a ship to, to Europe. Europe. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the books are about overcoming anxiety, about not letting logistics get in the way of your dreams. So for me, that was fear and money. Um, and basically to tell all the weird things in life, to talk about those things that everybody thinks about at four in the morning, but never really talk about, right. and to kind of talk about those things, but with humor instead of doom and gloom. So that's right. basically what the books are about. So just a quick uh, caveat for our listeners. So we flew out here today and we're flying back tomorrow. Um, 
to do some video, have you on my podcast, do some different things. And I had a panic attack on the airplane. And I can't imagine going to anybody else's place and being able to be like, listen, I just took a bunch of Xanax because I had with that before we go i want you to give some of the great advice like just give one or two facts of for people that do struggle with anxiety when it comes to to events to public events like flying or being out there give people one or two um things they can do to help control that like kind of like what you were talking about earlier tell me what i was talking about earlier well, you were just telling me like the breathing memory. and uh, yeah some so of the, well some of the things that have helped you overcome it yeah, so, so with an anxiety attack, it's hyperventilation that, yeah. that makes you feel like you're going crazy and that you're gonna die, yeah. right? So that's just a physiological response to over-breathing. And so you counteract an anxiety attack. Just like that, I snap my fingers by breathing into your hands for about 30 seconds and it turns it around. It, it, it stops the hyperventilation. The other thing that I found for me that worked is to make a decision to do something, like to get on the plane. So I had to make a decision, okay, I'm gonna get on this plane and I may have like crippling anxiety. I may get so scared on this plane that I die. That I, and so I am walking onto this plane knowing that I could die on this plane. And I'm still gonna do it because I want this bigger, more carefree life. And the only way to get around a problem is to go straight through it. That's right. what I've learned in my 61 years wow. and that's what I've been doing. And I don't have any idea what I'm doing. I'm like just making it up as I go, but it's working. It worked it, it work for me. And I am, I never thought I would be as peaceful and as confident as I am today, even though I, I would still describe myself as highly neurotic. Um, Funk calls that passionate. Right, and that's what my husband calls my, that's funny. So you've got a good husband too. <laughs> but, I'm here to tell you that it can be done, that right. you can go from a fetal position, living your life on the ground, to living a carefree, doing whatever you want to do kind of life. Well, the irony is not lost on me for a girl that had no idea why she was going to go to college. She got her bachelor's in psychology, and now she's writing books on how to essentially dominate those mental illness diseases that a lot of us are fighting, right? You know what, I don't, I don't consider it an illness. Yeah. Anxiety is just a way of being. Right. It's a human condition. It's like being hungry, you know? And so I think first we have to take the illness part out of it so that we start having the conversations that matter yeah. to cure us. So yeah, but That's thank you for the irony. Yeah. Well, thank you for putting my life together. Absolutely. Full circle right there. That's yeah. what I'm here for. Well, that is it for this week's cocktail hour. Do you want to hear from your favorite local businesswoman? Do you know a woman in business who is shaking shit up? Send your recommendations to HeyGirl at CocktailHourPodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe and share our podcast with your friends. We share our stories to motivate and inspire you. So spread the love around. Until next time, I'm Erin Fultz. Keep your class and your glass raised. And we'll see you at the next cocktail hour. Thanks, Gloria.